Butler has stepped in to help out with the youth this fall. He has asked me to fill the pulpit for a few Sundays uh, this fall. But don't worry, he'll be back next Sunday, Lord willing. Uh, But he has asked me to preach a few times uh, in the coming months as he serves our youth. And so we look forward to to that, uh, him coming back and also being able to preach as well. I also want to, on another note, I want to encourage all of our members to attend this afternoon's members meeting as we have some, again, some exciting updates on our church planning efforts, but also... uh, the, the growth that we're having at our church and the efforts that we're uh, trying to make to, to accommodate to that. Uh, but all throughout, would you uh, please uh, join me in prayer? Our God, we come to you in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Please open our eyes, ears, minds, and hearts to your word. May we be attentive to it. Show us your gospel. May the words that come out of my mouth, Lord, be in accordance with what your revealed word says. And may you be glorified this morning. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm 1. Psalm 1. And it's on page 448 in the Black Pew Bible in front of you. No, I've, uh, I've never met anybody who did not like music, some form of music. Why? Well, there's something about poetry and melody that is an essential element of human communication. All cultures have poetry. All cultures have music. It's ingrained in humanity. But why? Memory. Memories are such an important aspect of life. Uh, You hear a song today that you knew from your childhood, and it brings you back to that time. Songs you heard 30 years ago that you haven't heard since, then you hear it, and what do you find yourself doing? Singing the lyrics. I heard a song on the radio a couple weeks ago, and I don't think I have heard this song in over 20 years. It hasn't crossed my mind in over 20 years. And you know what I was doing? Singing the lyrics word for word to the song. How how was that still in my memory? Sadly, many songs I know by heart are not the most spiritually edifying. And some I'm actually kind of ashamed that I remember the lyrics to. But music and poetry are important in our lives. In fact, who will continue singing for all of eternity. And as a matter of fact, poetry and songs are throughout the whole Bible. They are even embedded in the biblical narratives and in epistles. An episode in a narrative often ends with a song. The Apostle Paul breaks out in song often in his letters. The end of Romans 11 comes to mind. And obviously we have a whole book in the Bible that is a collection of 150 songs. And one of them we'll be looking at this morning. But why? Why is poetry and song so embedded in the Bible? Again, memory. We are forgetful creatures. 
And as you get older, this problem increases and increases. And we have to be reminded over and over again of who God is, what he has done, and what he is going to do. Poetry and melody are essential elements to help us remember. Now, the forms of poetry and melody are not the masters, but the servants. The content is the master. The lyrics are the master. And the Lord has ordained poetry as a vehicle for us to remember who he is, what he has done, and what he will do. You want to memorize something? Put it into poetry and song. And you'll remember it the rest of your life. Even when the tragic diseases that affect the memory, and some of us are dealing with this with some of our parents, what is something they still remember? Songs. So it's pretty important what you fill your mind with from the get-go. We must fill our mind with songs that are biblical or, or biblically derived. What the New Testament describes as psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So as I, I will be filling in for Pastor Blair, Blair a few times this, this fall, we'll be journeying through a few psalms, Lord willing. And we will begin Psalm 1 this morning, and in a few weeks, Psalm 2. Now this is the, the two-headed introduction to the Psalter. You have to understand these two psalms before you go on to the remaining 148. Neither one of them have an introduction, which is a feature of most psalms. And the first line of Psalm 1, the last, psalm, last line of Psalm 2, bookend each other. Psalm 1 grounds us in the delighting and what the Lord has recorded in Scripture of what He's done in the past and what He will do in the future. And Psalm 2 shows us that we must, we must understand the Psalms Christologically. Meaning that we have to understand them in light of this king who is ruler over heaven and earth, who would one day suffer for his people, but then be glorified for all eternity. Namely, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then, Lord willing, we'll look at a couple of psalms that will take up the two major categories of psalms, lament and praise. Lament psalms are the largest category, surprisingly, and they are essentially complaints to God. The others are praise psalms, which is pretty self-explanatory. But no matter what you are studying in the Bible throughout the year, you may be studying different books right now, we all should be getting a steady diet of the Psalms. This morning, again, we'll be looking at the first part of the introduction to the Psalter, Psalm 1. So what is this Psalm about? Delighting in the Word of God. You want to live the blessed life? Delight in the written revelation of the one true God. We can't say, "Ah, we've got this. I know we ought to delight in the Word of God. This is elementary stuff. Yeah, it is, but we often forget. So we have this as the introduction to the Psalms. And as we look at the formation of the Psalm, we will see three progressions. The way the blessed, the ways contrasted, the ways concluded, and then we will see what delighting in the instruction of the Lord looks like. But first, the way of the blessed. Look at verses 1 through 2 of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, 
nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Blessed is the man. So does this sound familiar? It's essentially the same wording as Jesus' Beatitudes as recorded in the Gospels. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers, etc. It's the exact same wording. wording. Blessed is the man. Now this term is for man, but it can include also men or women. But this person is blessed. It really means happy or joyful. Not, now it's not an emotional or a circumstantial aspect, but a, a godly joy, a godly contentment. And how is this person happy or joyful or content? Well, the psalm, the psalm continues with three progressive, progressing negatives and one positive. You'll notice also the progress of these actions as well, these statements. Walk, stand, sit, representing three types of realms, thinking, belonging, and behaving. And you'll see three names for the same, types of, same type of people. So pay attention to these rhetorical devices here. They may not have rhyme. Rhyme is not an essential element of Hebrew poetry, but this is masterful poetry. So the blessed man does not what? Walk. Action. Walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Now who are the wicked in the psalmist's mind? How are they described in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible? Those who worship foreign gods, those who rob justice to the poor, those who plot uh, murder to gain power. This is in the heart of all those who do not know God, those who are apart from Christ. It's not necessarily that they act upon this, but it's in their heart of hearts. Blessed is a man who does not walk in their counsel, in their advice. Well, of course, no one's going to do this knowingly. But someone who is not grounded in God's word will fall for this counsel. The wicked are great salesmen. Their deception is subtle. And the ignorant fall for their advice because it sounds wise. It sounds pragmatic. It it accomplishes its goals. Not only that, but the blessed man does not stand in the pathway of sinners from walking, which would have been behavior, now standing, which would encompass a position or, or mind frame. The distinction here is not from type or group he associates with the previous. For the wicked and, and sinners are names for the same group. But walking implies the practical day-to-day life while standing demonstrates the thoughts. And now the the next, the final negative is that he does not sit in the seat of scoffers. And this is the kind of the apex of the negatives. Because this person not only walks and thinks like the rest of the world, but he has a community with them. He sits in their congregation. They are his home. They are where he is accepted and affirmed because he's just like them. Scoffers may have maybe a higher insult because they're not only wicked, but they also ridicule and abuse the righteous. Okay, so we have three characteristics that don't describe the blessed man. You have the wicked being a, a broad category, but the blessed man being singular. Could be denoting something of the, 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 the plurality of, of sinners and the, 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 uh, 
the narrow way of the blessed. Okay, so what does describe this person? Here's the contrast. But the blessed man's delight is in the law of the Lord. Now you notice it doesn't start with what he does, but with what he loves. What you love determines what you do. We will see where this love comes from a little bit later. Here's a spoiler. It does not come from him. It comes from outside of him. But what does he love? The law of Yahweh, the Torah of Yahweh, which is literally the instruction of Yahweh, the the God of Israel. At this time, this would have been the first five books of the Bible. What God had revealed to Israel in written form. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So in essence, his delight is in the Bible, God's written word. And this word that, to describe his desire for the, for the word of God is, is one of joy, one of delight. It doesn't say he just knows the Bible in a mere intellectual sense or has it just memorized. No, he loves it. He cherishes it. He desires it. Like mowing the grass on a hot summer day in Alabama, you, you desire that cool water. You finally get it and you gulp it down and you can't get enough. Now, why would someone desire Genesis 18 like that or Leviticus 13 or Numbers 3? Because the blessed man wants to know God. How do you know God? And I mean know Him, not merely about Him. It's through His Word. There's no other way to know him outside of his revealed word. There's nowhere else to hear him apart from his scriptures. And because of this, because this man delights in God's word, what does he do? What is his action? He meditates on the word day and night. And this word communicates a total absorption of thought, asking questions, seeking answers, repeating it backwards and forwards, reading, then praying, praying, then reading. From when the alarm goes off in the morning to when you set the alarm at night. Now, this is a hyperbolic statement similar to pray without ceasing. The hyperbole paints a picture of total immersion in the Word as we go about our daily affairs. All my thought, all my actions are grounded in God's revealed Word. Everything, everything I think about, everything I do is interpreted through that grid. This is one thing that distinguishes the blessed man, the righteous man, the believer from the rest of the world. When I study Scripture, whether it's through listening to sermons on Sunday or my personal reading, I'm constantly struck by the beauty and the reality of the Bible. What do I mean by that? It's the only book that perfectly captures what life is like in a fallen world. It captures the beauty of grace. It shows the reality and effects of sin. As you study, as you truly study Scripture, you realize there are no true heroes in the Bible except one, our triune God. 
the Father who plans to redeem a people through His Son who takes on the punishment for our sin, and the Holy Spirit who applies this redemption to His people. That's it. Only one hero. Abraham is not a hero, although he has admirable qualities later in his life. Moses is not a hero. David is not a hero. Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah are not heroes. They are all sinners. And because of that, we can all relate to them. And even in their documented sins, as is recorded in the revealed word. Peter denied the Lord Jesus three times. John wanted Jesus to strike down some folks. Paul called himself the chief of sinners. Not looking to the past, but looking currently. I am the chief of sinners. You also see all the men and women of God in all the Bible suffer greatly. Their lives are not prosperous in a worldly sense. Life's hard for them. But God is the true and only hero. He is the one who patterns mercy and grace. He is the only one who could deal with our sin. He is the only one who can redeem this earth. And when we share Scripture, although we see the chaos in this world, by the way, the world has been chaotic since the fall. There has never been a golden age, and it is still chaotic to this day. You study history long enough, you quickly realize this. But when we see the chaos in this world, we are reminded Again, because we forget, we are reminded of the sovereign, ever-present, stable, unchangeable God who not only redeems our own personal lives, but will one day eradicate all pain and sorrow, sin and chaos. Reality and beauty. And speaking of beauty, we are in fact looking at a poem here. And what is one element of poetry? Imagery. And that leads us to the second section. We see the ways pictured, imaged, if you will. Verses 3 and 4. He is like a tree, speaking of the blessed man, the righteous man, the, the one who delights in the law of the Lord. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff, that the wind drives away. So the, the psalmist paints a word picture here. The man who delights in the word of God is like that tree, an oasis. He has constant nourishment, and because of this, he bears fruit. And he contrasts this with the, the wicked who are not so. They're like the desert tumbleweed that's tossed miles and miles, and its destination is to disintegrate. There's no life in it, like dried parched chaff that goes every which way. Now, this word picture, however, is not primarily to paint the outcomes of the fruitful tree versus the chaff, but to paint the picture of the source of fruitfulness. The streams of water is the main object in this picture. The streams of water are the Word of God, the Bible. God's Word is the source of the fruitfulness. And without it, man is chaff. Okay, well, this is a great word picture here. 
But admittedly, this is the most challenged portion of the psalm for the rest of the Psalter. As you know, lamentation is the most common psalm in the collection of 150 psalms. But what is questioned here? Well, the righteous don't seem to prosper. Remember, I just, just said how the Bible just corresponds to reality so much. Well, the righteous don't seem to prosper. Those who delight in the Lord's words are beaten and hiding. They're often left alone. While the wicked prosper, the wicked enemies are rich and powerful and don't seem to have a care in this world. So you mean to tell me, Mr. Psalm writer, that the righteous ones, those believers, those who delight in the Lord's words, prosper? They bear fruit? And the wicked die and are scattered? How is this so when this seemingly does not correspond with reality? I'm not seeing this. In fact, this is the opposite. But let's look at the text. What does it not say? It doesn't say he prospers financially. It doesn't say he rises to power and influence. It doesn't say he will live a life pain and suffering free, does it? No, it uses the language of bearing fruit. As we just read from the Gospel of John, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. The language of bearing fruit throughout the Bible is metaphorical for, for good works, obeying Christ's commands. Something that cannot be done by an unbeliever and something that can only be done by a believer through God's grace, through the means of cherishing his word. So how does one do good works? By knowing God in Christ. By believing in Christ's gospel. Growth and knowledge and love for the word leads to walking in God's commands. And not out of obligation, but out of love for our Heavenly Father and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The prosperity here is a prosperity not of worldly riches and power, but of good works called fruit, which we often don't see. I'm no expert gardener, but over the past few years, my wife and I, and mostly my wife, have observed many things that we've planted in the garden, planting plants out in the, the yard, transporting plants to other places. One thing we notice is the life of the tree or the plant is really not dependent on itself. It's not independent. There are various factors that go into its flourishing. Right type of soil, climate, water amounts. One plant can flourish on one side of the yard, but you move it to another and it dies, turns into chaff. You move that struggling Japanese maple to another part of the yard, one where the, the, the water kind of settles well, and it triples in size in just a few months. These trees and plants are, are passive. They're totally dependent on soil, water, and sunlight. The means by which God has ordained for it to grow. Faith in Christ is not inherent in us. We hear the gospel or read it from the Bible. The Holy Spirit, through the proclaimed gospel, implants faith in us. He is the one who implants love in us. It is not from us. He also sanctifies us, causing us to grow. 
And we don't grow in Christ's likeness apart from the means of which God has ordained from cherishing and meditating on his word. So what we put in our thoughts and our hearts will play out in our lives. We become like what we love. And we see there are only two types of people in this world here. The righteous and the wicked. Those who love the word of God and those who hate it. And this leads us to the concluding section of this psalm. We see the ways contrasted and concluded. Look at verses 5 and 6. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Therefore, concluding statement in this poem, the wicked will literally not rise in the judgment. It's a different word from uh, verse 1. They're both translated as stand, but stand in verse 1 refers to a position. Rise or stand here refers to action. The wicked will have no platform to rise and stand at the judgment. But they will be cut down and cast out. They will not have their inheritance with the righteous. They will not congregate eternally with God's righteous ones. Why? Because the Lord knows the way the righteous. They walk in his ways. They they walk according to his revealed will. He knows them and they know him. As you've probably heard before, knowing someone in the Bible is not described as a mental ascent to facts, but it's an intimate relationship to know someone. To know someone is to be an intimate relationship with them. Contrasting this is the destiny of the world. They do not have life. They will die eternally. Judgment is coming for them. They have so-called prosperous lives on this present earth, but they will inherit eternal poverty when they die, totally separated from the grace of the Lord. So in these complaints later on, these lamentations that God's people have, this is going to come up. As I said earlier, there are only two types of people on this earth, the righteous and the wicked. The Bible does speak in absolutes here. How this is manifested, how this looks may be different, but there are only two types in the world. However, really and truly, there is only one who is inherently righteous, and all the rest, including you and me, are by nature wicked. Our Lord and Savior is the only righteous one. He is the only one who truly delights in his word. In fact, he wrote it. In fact, he totally perfected human nature when he came to this earth and lived perfectly righteous in human flesh. He died for these wicked ones that they may be his righteous ones. He rose that they may have eternal life as their inheritance. This is important to note. This is important to note. Remember this. When we see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, not just in the Psalms, but in all the Bible, the righteous are not those who are by nature righteous. 
No, they are all those who hide under the canopy of Jesus Christ's righteousness. Their status, because they seek refuge in him, all those still sinners are declared righteous by God. So implant that in your heart and in your mind. My righteousness is only in Christ. Anybody's righteousness is only in Christ. Only by grace am I not counted a part of the wicked. But also, we must remember that those who have been declared righteous by God through faith in Jesus, they will grow in practical righteousness as they grow in the knowledge and love of Christ's word. Christ starts the work and he finishes it. Those of us who are all by nature wicked, by the way, who seek refuge in Christ, escape God's wrathful judgment. But those who refuse and continue in their rebellion will be judged and will eternally perish. We not only see that in this poem that God's word feeds us and grows us and is the means by which we bear fruit, we also see that there will be judgment one day. As we've seen the lament psalms, this is crucially important when we see the lament, lamentations. When they have those cries for justice, there has to be eternal justice or there is no justice at all. Justice in this world is in, it's imperfect. There is justice to be had in this world. God has ordained the governing authorities. He's ordained the sword for a temporal judgment. But there will be eternal judgment one day. The unrepentant wicked who do, not, who do not seek Christ's righteousness by faith in him, who seem to prosper in this life, will one day face doom. All, all wrongs will be judged and all saints will be vindicated and justice will be no more. So as, you, as we continue in the Psalms, as you study personally through the Psalms, remember Remember this. Now, if you're a guest here today, again, we're, we're glad you're here. We welcome you. Some of you have been returning guests. Some of you, this may be the first time you've heard about this Jesus. You can talk about this Jesus from the Psalms. We want you to know what Jesus, who Jesus is, what he has done on our behalf. We would like you to know that you could be forgiven of your sin. And be reconciled to God. And to be declared righteous and right standing, pure in God's sight. And it's through faith in Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Say, Lord, Lord, I have sinned against you and you alone. I believe you sent your son to die for me. Please save me. Call out to him to save you and he will and if that's the case for you today, please talk to someone here. I'd love to talk, share to you what it means to, to walk with Jesus, to, to know him. They'd love to help you. Psalm 1, part, of, part 1 of the opening of the Psalter, teaches us that the way of the believer, the way of the righteous, the way of the blessed, stands firm in the word of the Lord, while the way of the world, the wicked, is scattered and judged. So in the midst of a chaotic, ever-changing, and suffering-filled world, let us meditate continually 
on the Word of God, not compromising on our belief in the authority of, the, of His Word. And don't forget this as you read through the Psalms personally. But what, is it, what does it look like to meditate on His Word? We hear about this all the time. I mean, read the Word, meditate on it. What does it mean to meditate on it? Well, I'm actually not going to start with the personal Bible reading. I want to start with something else. With the regular diet of the preached word. Now, please don't get me wrong. Listening to podcasts, videos, live streams of good preachers is a good thing. Not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But being here with the congregation, hearing the word preached right in front of you by a pastor who knows you, it's irreplaceable. It cannot be replaced. And it is essential for your growth as a Christian. And it is the primary means by which Christ establishes and grows his church. Secondly, through baptism and the Lord's Supper. And you say, well, huh, what? How do we meditate on God's word when we're talking about the baptism and the Lord's Supper? It's such a peripheral type of thing in our evangelical circles. But this is a a part of meditating on God's word. We see baptism when you've been baptized, but also when you see baptism, you're reminded of what baptism demonstrates, what it shows us, how God speaks to his people through it, that we have died with Christ and we've risen with Christ. The gospel is proclaimed in a different way in baptism. And the Lord's Supper, when we take part of it here regularly uh, once a month, what is Christ proclaiming to his church? My body and blood for you. Meditating on that, meditating on that throughout the day, what, the magnitude of what he is doing and what he's communicating to us, his people. Singing. <laughs> I just talked about, from, from the get-go, talk about song. Sing. How important that is. As we sing, we don't mind, hopefully, we don't mindlessly repeat words, but thinking about the lyrics. Here at this church, that's one of the things I love. We sing songs that are derived from the scriptures. We don't sing mindless, repetitive fluff. We sing songs of scripture derived from scripture. So as we're singing, even new songs that you don't even know, reading those lyrics and meditating on them as they are derived from Scripture. Again, one of my favorite songs, Christian songs, Mighty Fortresses Are God, kind of derived from Psalm 46, Martin Luther writing it as he's meditating on Psalm 46. Now to personal Bible study, daily intake of the Word of God. I can't bind your conscience on how to do it, but it should be daily. It should be a daily intake, preferably book by book, not mindlessly listening or, or reading, checking a box, but asking questions, memorizing, writing out thoughts, chewing it, chewing on it. And then following that, teach. No, no, not talking about a, a, a formal setting. I'm talking about finding someone, that, a fellow believer that, I, I was reading through Psalm 1. I, can I share what, what I've learned from that? And they can go, go back and forth, share what they've been learning. 
that back and forth, that dialogue, that communal reading that we go back and forth with each other and build one another up in the Word. And finally, praying through Scripture. Reading through the Psalms and letting them guide your prayers. Reading through Paul's prayers in the New Testament and letting them guide your prayers. How much of your your memory of God's Word and your prayer life will be affected by repeating the words of the Bible in your own words? Now listen to this. Remember this. Please remember this. What What is the end goal of all these graces and disciplines? Is it that I would be the smartest Bible scholar here? Well, God forbid that be my motive. Is it that I, is it that, so others would see how holy and perfect I am, how I got everything together? May God have mercy on me, the sinner, if that's the case. No. No, the, the end goal is to know God more and more. And that is a journey that continues forever and ever. Knowing God is, is our purpose and our great end of existence. He is the only one who satisfies us. He is our blessing. He is our stream of water. He is our way. Blessed is the man or woman who delights in the word, the instruction, the law of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. Give us an insatiable desire for your word. Lord, I confess, oftentimes I don't. I'm dry. I'm, I've, I've, I've uh, not hidden your word in my heart. I have not seen the sufficiency of your word to, to feed my soul. But I'm thankful for the grace of repentance. I'm thankful that through your word you lead me to conviction, lead me to, to yourself. You draw us near. You, you, you grab us and you take hold of us through your word. Lord, may we always conform our lives to what your word says. Lord, continue to convict us with your law and comfort us with your gospel. In the name of our precious Savior, amen.